So if you have a Bible or a sheet or whatever, um, we're going to be looking at just a brief passage out of the book of Genesis. And what we're doing, what we've been doing basically this whole semester is we've been walking through what the Bible has to say about relationships. And um, with only two uh, weeks left in the whole semester, it's time that we approach sort of this big, um, controversial, really personal topic of sex and sexuality. And so tonight and next week, we're going to be talking about what the Bible wants to say about sex and what it has to say about um, sexuality. And just to let you know on the front end before I read this, I'm getting a lot of um, help tonight from a couple of different uh, thinkers and pastors. One is a guy named Rankin Wilburn, who's a Presbyterian pastor in Los Angeles. Another is a guy named Dan Doriani, who is a professor at um, a seminary in St. Louis. So if there's anything helpful tonight, it probably came from them. If there's anything confusing or offensive, it probably came from me. Sorry. sorry. Um, so let's look at these. Uh, we're just going to look at a couple of verses out of Genesis chapter 2. There's a lot that the Bible has to say about sex, but these will be sort of the foundational representative passages as we kind of ease into this topic. So here we go. Genesis 2 verse 18 says this. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, this At last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is God's word for us tonight. Let me pray, and then we'll jump in and talk about it. Okay, let's pray. Uh, Father, um, I feel especially um, nervous and sober and um, just uneasy talking about this topic, which I know is so um, painful for a lot of folks in this room and so confusing for a lot of folks in this room. And it just hits close to home in lots of different um, levels. And so would you be gracious um, to us now as we explore these things and what your word has to say about it. I pray that you would, um, as we always pray, send your spirit to open up our eyes and to soften our hearts and to unclog our ears so that we would be able to see and to behold beautiful things. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you had this experience. When I was in high school, I'd go out with the friends do our thing, tool around, drive around, I don't know, do whatever you do in high school. And at some point, uh, you know, you kind of look at the clock, and at least for me, there was this curfew that was always sort of lingering out there, and the curfew was getting closer and closer and closer. And inevitably, you know, but at least at that time of the night, you start getting hungry. And so me and my boys would always, you know, before curfew, swing through, hit up that Taco Bell. We'd swing through, hit up that Wendy's. You know, we kind of, you know, do whatever. And I remember, I can remember being in this seat in this car when one of my friends at the Wendy's drive-thru ordered a Frosty and French fries. And I was a little confused that that was the extent of his order. And then when we got all of our food, he proceeded to you know, dip the fries in the Frosty. And I thought, 
That sounds disgusting. That sounds nasty. Hot, salty potatoes with cold, sweet, creamy chocolate stuff. Whatever, whatever Frosty really is. Who knows? I just thought, you know, this sweet, cold thing and this hot, salty thing, this does not make sense. It sounded nasty to me. Well, some time went by, and I began to notice this pattern that other people were doing this. This was not just like this quirky thing that my friend did. This like a thing that people do. And so inevitably, I tried it. So friend gave me the fry, got the frosty, dip it, take it to the face, and all of a sudden, you know, it's like, okay, game on. I know what we're, I know what we're talking about, and I know why this works. It, feel, it felt like, you know, in some ways, somebody had kind of given me a little secret of the, of the universe. Here's a little secret nobody knows about frosty and french fry. Now, even when I go to Wendy's now and get a frosty, it feel, uh, you have to get a, the fries with it. Those two things go together. It's like chips and salsa. They have to go together. Peanut butter and jelly. Gots to go together. Justin Bieber in jail. Gots to go together. <laughs> so the reason why um, the reason why I begin that way is because, in some sense, I hope that's sort of your experience tonight. I hope that that's your experience tonight because, like I said, we're going to talk about what the Bible has to say about sex. And my guess is, initially, for a lot of you, you're going to have that same reaction, that it sounds crazy. Initially, it just sounds crazy. It's like French fries and Frosty, that doesn't mesh. It sounds crazy. But my hope is, my prayer is, is that by the end of the night, it will at least make more sense to you, the Bible's understanding of sex. I realize that not everybody in this room is going to go all the way with me. But my hope is that at least it will make some sense to you. If not, actually be good news to you tonight. So let's, let's actually get into what the Bible's view of sex is. Here it is sort of in a nutshell. The Bible's view of sex, and by the way, when I say sex, I'm not just referring to intercourse. I'm referring to sort of all sexual activity, which I think the Bible would say um, all sexual activity, not just intercourse, is under this banner of sex. So if you're doing everything except intercourse, by the way, you're still having sex, according to the Bible. But... What is the understanding of sex? Here it is. The Bible's view of sex is this. That sex is to be enjoyed exclusively in the context of marriage between a man and a woman. That's the Bible's view of sex. That sex is to be enjoyed exclusively only in the context of marriage between a man and a woman. So I realize um, initially that sounds crazy to some of you. But what I'm going to try to do tonight is to try to show you that I think it's a lot better than you think it is. So that's that's kind of my two big ideas that I want to kind of unpack tonight. Number one, the Bible's view of sex sounds crazy. I'm willing to concede that point. It sounds crazy. But secondly, let's also look at that the Bible's view of sex is better than you think it is. So let's just look at these one at a time. Here's the first, um, that the Bible's view of sex sounds crazy. And um, I realize for me to stand up on a you know, major university campus in the year 2014 and say, hey, by the way, sex is only, should, be, it should only be enjoyed in the context of essentially heterosexual marriage. Um, I, I realize that that sounds uh, outdated and silly at best, and it sounds oppressive and bigoted and hateful at worst. 
And so I just, you know, I understand on the front end that it sounds, just me even saying that can be hurtful and be insulting and offensive to some of you. And so I do want to ease into this topic um, gently and at least acknowledge on the front end, I realize it sounds, it sounds crazy. But let me at least make this case. 50 or 60 years ago or so, the Bible's view of sex would not have sounded crazy. It would not have sounded crazy because the the only reason it sounds crazy now is because you and I live in what one author has called the I world. And the I world is just this author's descriptive term to basically describe the cultural moment that we find ourselves in right now. The I world. And the I world, as our sort of cultural moment, it is dominated by this value, expressive individualism. Now, it's a little bit of a technical term, but if you're kind of willing to kind of jump in with me and pull it apart, I think it'll make a little bit more sense if you break it down. Expressive individualism. Individualism basically means uh, we deeply prize individuality. We, as 2014 Western contemporary Americans, value freedom, autonomy, self-determination. We do not want anybody to tell us what to do from the outside. We want to be free to choose what we want to do. We want to be free to choose who we are. In other words, um, don't tell me what I can't do. John Locke's famous line that he said all the time in the show Lost. Don't tell me what I can't do. Uh, Or think about this. No rules, just right. That's Outback Steakhouse. Little tagline. Um, J.C. Penney, you want to know what their sort of advertising motto is? Uh, J.C. Penney, which I would not think is this cutting-edge progressive company. They kind of feel like an old-school company to me. But here's their advertising motto. Be a rebel, make your own rules. J.C. Penney. Um, even, <laughs> even my daughter's beloved Elsa on Frozen um, in her really obscure song, Let It Go, um, she has the line, no right, no wrong. Uh, No rules for me, I'm free. That's the idea that our culture has kind of, uh, that's that's the value of our culture, individualism. We want to be free to do what we want to do, but it's not just individualism, it's expressive individualism, which means um, if you feel it, think it, believe it, desire it, then you should express it. You should do it. A couple of... um, Ideas here. I mean, think, just think about your own life. You post your life on Facebook. You express your life on Facebook. You post your ideas on Twitter. You post your photos on Instagram. Uh, you have your blogs. You upload your videos. I mean, social media has just poured gas on this fire of giving you outlets to express yourself. Express yourself, which is the advertising motto of the Canon EO5 Rebel. Express yourself. Um, do your own thing. Levi's original. Choose your own path. Nissan. In other words, if it feels good, do it. If it feels good, do it. Follow your heart. In fact, think about this for a second. Think about the phrase, follow your heart. That little phrase is in some sense the motto of our cultural moment. That is sort of the proverb of the I world that we live in. Follow your heart. It is the the title of three different movies all of which scored a below 35 rating on Rotten Tomatoes. And if you even take that phrase and you analyze um, the movies that are out there, it's, in, it's almost in every movie, that idea, follow your heart. Let me give you a few examples. It's in um, the, all the Care Bear movies and Ella Enchanted. <laughs> Captain America follows his heart. 
Uh, Billy Elliot, the dancer, movie 2000, uh, follows his heart. Napoleon Dynamite follows his heart. Richard Gere follows his heart in Pretty Woman. Braveheart said, follow your heart. So we know at least dates back to the 14th century in Scotland, that phrase, <laughs> follow your heart. Um, Field of Dreams, Kevin Costner follows his heart. Even in outer space, they're following their heart. You've got um, Battlestar Galactica, Luke Skywalker followed his heart and he blows up the Death Star. Matt Damon bought a zoo because he followed his heart. And um, in Goodwill Hunting, he followed his heart. Bradley Cooper followed his heart in Silver Linings Playbook and as an FBI agent in American Hustle. Both of them, he followed his heart. I mean, the references are just endless. The message that the iWorld is telling you over and over, no rules, just write, do whatever you want to do, follow your heart. That's sort of, in some sense, the heart and soul of expressive individualism. If you think it, if you feel it, if you desire it, if it feels natural, if you want it, you should do it. You should do it. That's why I think in some ways um, Steve Jobs and Apple just were so, they understood the cultural moment that we're in. And so, of course, they, they marketed all of their products with that prefix I. iPhone, iPad, me.com. This is sort of the heart and soul of the cultural moment that we find ourselves in. So, um, here's what I want you to see. Is that the I world comes to you as a different way to understand what it means to be a human being. That's a different, that, that's a clashing narrative. It's, a, it's offering you a different gospel on what it means to be a human being. And here is basically the gospel message of the I world. It's this, is that personal fulfillment is found in you having the freedom to choose what you want to do and who you want to be. That's where you find personal fulfillment. What it means to be, to flourish as a human being, according to the gospel of the I world is that you have the freedom to choose what you want to do and who you want to be. And that's why um, it's, it's, it's the cardinal sin to criticize anybody. It's the ultimate wrong to tell anybody that they're wrong. Because who are you to tell me that I'm wrong if it feels right to me? If it feels right, how can it be wrong? So what does this have to do with sex? I thought we were talking about sex tonight. Here's what this has to do with sex. One of the strongest desires that you have is for sex. And so if you connect the dots from the cultural landscape that we're in, from the I-worlds, and you put your sexual desires in it, this means that you think, essentially, if I desire it, if I have the instinct for it, if it feels natural, then I should be able to have sex with whoever I want to as long as it's consensual and as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. And so I want you to understand that's essentially why... Um, when I stand up here and say the Bible's view of sex is that it's exclusively reserved for the context of marriage between a man and a woman, it just sounds nutso. It sounds crazy talk. Because the Bible's not just offering a different understanding of sex. It's offering a different worldview. It's confronting the dominant idea of our age, which is you're free to do whatever you want to do. And if you feel it, if you desire it, you should be able to express it as long as it's consensual and as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. So where do we um, essentially go from here? Well, uh, the reason I brought all of this up is just to kind of let you know on the front end, there, I get it. I, I, get, I get that it feels... Um, crazy. I get that it feels um, offensive. And so I just wanted to, in some sense, just sympathize with you on the front end and say, I, 
I get it. It, it does sound crazy if, if you're a part of the I world, as it were. So some of you are going to basically kind of mute me and kind of zone out from here on out, and, and that's fine, but I want to encourage you to kind of lean in with me and say, okay, I know the Bible's view of sex sounds crazy, but let's also look at the second thing, that maybe the Bible's view of sex is better than you think it is. If you're willing to sort of lean in to this, uh, let's talk about this next thing, the second thing, that the Bible's view of sex, I think it's actually better than you think it might be. So let's go here. Um, for as committed as our culture is to expressive individualism, I am deeply convinced that our culture does not know actually how to view sex. Our culture is deeply confused about what sex is and how to view it. And what I mean by that is, on the one hand, sex has never been more of a big deal uh, than it is right now in our cultural moment. I mean, think about where we are on the University of Tennessee. We have a whole week dedicated to sex. Sex week, to celebrate it, to explore it, to kind of, you know, wrestle with it. We have a whole week dedicated to sex. Uh, furthermore, nobody in human history before the 20th century ever talked about sex as necessary to human fulfillment. It was never talked about in those terms that you had to have sex in order to be a whole person. Furthermore, nobody really uh, within the past I mean, this is, a, this is a new thing of the past 50, 60 years. Nobody has ever talked about your sexual orientation as being the thing that defines your identity, the thing that makes you who you are. So you put all that together and say, on the one hand, sex has become so much more of a big deal than it has ever been in our culture. And yet, on the other hand, sex is so much less of a big deal than it's ever been in our culture. For the point of sex sells beer, bad beer, by the way. Um, sex sells Fast food. I saw a commercial this week. I don't know if y'all seen that new Hardee's commercial. What in the world? There's this um, chesty, uh, attractive supermodel girl seductively eating a bacon cheeseburger for Hardee's. Um, it's a little odd. Um, sex sells shampoo. I mean, do y'all remember those um, herbal essence commercials from a few, you know, number of years ago? It was a woman in the shower with a shampoo simulating an orgasm. You're like, okay, shampoo is uh, amazing, apparently. So, <laughs> on the one hand, I mean, sex is so much more of a big deal than it's ever been, and on the other hand, sex is it's you know it's it's cheap. Lauren Winter, who is an um, author, uh, she's a professor up at Duke Divinity, uh, she nailed it on the head in, in her little book. She has a great little book called Real Sex, which I would commend to you. But she has a great little quote in there, and here's what she says about it. She says, society tells us simultaneously that sex is no big deal and that it's the most important thing in the universe. Sex is so meaningless that we can have random casual sex with our next door neighbor, and yet sex is so hugely significant that we can't possibly live without it. So I want to make it the case that I don't think the I world knows how to understand sex. It doesn't know where to put sex in the universe, but the Bible does. And the Bible's view of sex is, I think it's going to be better than you think it is. And here's why. Because according to the Bible, sex is a huge deal. It's a huge deal. But it is not necessary to your fulfillment as a human being. Sex is a huge deal, but it's not necessary to your fulfillment as a human. And so, really for the rest of our time, I want to break that sentence apart and just look at each of the halves one at a time. First, sex is a huge deal. Where do we get this? Well, let's actually look at the passage now. 
If you look at Genesis 2, we're going to look at verse 24. It says, um, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Some of your translations say he'll be united to his wife. And so when the Bible talks about holding fast to your wife or being united or becoming one flesh, this is talking about so much more than just physical union. This is talking about so much more than just your bodies coming together for a moment. This is talking about who you are holistically, mind, body, and soul, joining, gluing to another person's mind, body, and soul. Sex was intended to glue you together with another human being for more than just that moment. It's your body making a promise to the other person's body, which is this. Everything that I am is all of yours forever. That's what sex is designed to communicate. That's how God designed sex to to communicate. You're communicating all of me is yours forever. And actually, if you you look at, um, man, this is great. Well, I don't know if I'd say it's a great movie. I would not recommend this movie because it's so over the top. But it was a great movie a number of years ago uh, called Vanilla Sky. Tom Cruise, uh, Cameron Diaz. Tom Cruise plays this sort of hotshot playboy guy and uh, he's promiscuous and has all sorts of um, casual sexual relationships. And he has this sexual relationship with the Cameron Diaz character. And at one point in the movie, he tries to end it with her to um, start pursuing somebody else. And at one point, there's this really intense scene. You can actually find this particular scene on YouTube where Cameron Diaz confronts Tom Cruise. And she looks at him and she says, when you sleep with someone, your body makes a promise whether or not you do. Your body makes a promise whether or not you do. And I think that's really insightful. I think that's actually affirming what the Bible says, is that God designed sex to kind of function like glue. That you're gluing yourself, mind, body, and soul, to another person holistically, saying, all of me is yours. I'm making a promise to you with everything that I am that I'm yours forever. And so if you think about the implications of that, if that's true, if that's what sex is, if that's what's actually going on in sex, then think about how that plays out in your life. Uh, I think this is why um, if, you have, if you have ever you know, had sex with someone or you hook up with someone or even if you go... Uh, you just kind of mess around and go somewhat far physically or sexually. I think that's why when the person gets up and leaves either that night or the next morning, it just kind of feels like you've been lied to. Because there's no guarantee that they're going to return your phone call that day or the next day or respond to your texts. There's no guarantee that they're in it for the long haul. Uh, basically you feel lied to because they communicated one thing with their body which is I want to be with you I want to be vulnerable with you I want to share everything that I am with you but then when they get up and leave they communicate another thing with their life which is I don't want to share everything with you at least legally and financially and socially and permanently and so they're telling you one thing with their body and another thing with your life. And that's why you feel this kind of like ache of confusion and guilt and sadness and emptiness. You just feel small. Where you feel like that didn't, something's off here. This is also why, um, by the way, I think it, it's, it just feels nearly impossible to get over the person that you were first sexually involved with. I mean, for a lot of you, my guess is your first real sexual encounters came in high school. Either actual all-out sex or just sort of messing around. And 
high school passed, here you are at college, y'all broken up, and months have passed, maybe even years have passed, and you still feels like, I'm still hung up on that person. I can't get over that person. It just feels so hard to get over them because your heart hasn't caught up to reality yet. Uh, I think this is also why um, when you get sexual in your relationships, you get physical, even in your dating relationships, you, it starts activating crazy emotional stuff in you that's in, in a lot of ways premature. I mean, you've been dating for like a week and you've been making out on the couch for three hours and it's two o'clock in the morning and everything in you wants to tell them you love them. You know what I'm saying? You have that feeling where you're like, I want to just tell I want to marry this person. And sometimes you say that and that would be a bad idea. But when you... The point is, is that the physical stuff, the sexual stuff, it, act, it fuels the emotional stuff. Those two things always go together. And once the emotional stuff is fueled, it, it activates the desire for more physical contact. And so these two things fuel each other and feed off of each other. And if you're not permanently united in the context of marriage, that's like a nuclear reaction blowing up in your face. Dating, casually hooking up, can't handle that sort of power. Which is also, by the way, some of your relationships... You can't break up with each other when you should. You've been sexually active with each other, and you feel so glued to the other person, so connected to the other person. To break up with them feels like you're cutting out a part of your, a part of you, a part of your existence. Even when you might know it's unhealthy, and your family thinks it's unhealthy, and all your friends think it's unhealthy, and you think we're fighting all the time, we feel terribly guilty. This is awful, but I can't end it. And then you use sex to be the thing that repairs the relationship, which only fuels the fighting and the guilt, and we're just stuck in this cycle. So look, you have to see there's so much more going on in the sexual experience than just biology, than just anatomy, than just hormones. Bible saying it's all of you as a person being united to another person, gluing who you are to another person, not just in that moment for but really forever. And and that's why the Bible, that's why God puts a big flashing no sign about sex outside of the context of marriage. It's not because God's anti-sex. It's because God's saying, look, if you you kind of wander into this thing that is this powerful, your life's going to unravel at the very point where you're trying to connect with another human being. Think about it like this. Um, Some of y'all... Freshmen and sophomores were at our little bonfire that we did last week. Bonfire was awesome. We had this huge fire going. You've been to a bonfire. You've seen fires. So you know, you've been to this. Um, I love, I, I, think bon, I think fires are awesome. I love the smell. I love how fires just sort of like hypnotize you. You know, you just sort of like stare at it and you just kind of get lost looking at it. And people are like, hey, you okay? And so it just sort of, it sucks you in. It's, it's bright. It's warm. You're sort of cooking the s'mores and the hot dogs on it. It's just, everything's awesome about it. But if you were to take a bonfire and say, this is awesome out here in this field. Let's do this in our living room. That would be bad. Because it would destroy your house and destroy everything that you care about. My point is, context matters. Context matters. Fire is a beautiful thing. It's a wonderful thing. It's a dangerous thing. If you take it out of a a safe context and you put it over here, it's going to destroy everything. Same way with sex. Sex is this wonderful, enriching, beautiful thing. But if you take it outside of its intended context, it does damage. It unravels you. 
And if you don't believe what I'm saying, just think about it this way. Here's how this damage affects you. If you continue to go down this road of having multiple sexual partners, multiple casual sexual experiences, what happens is that your bonding apparatus begins to lose its stickiness. And it becomes harder and harder to actually connect with a human being in a meaningful way. You become cold, you become distant, you become suspicious. You don't let people in. You're guarded. You become cynical. You lose your stickiness. And so I know for some of you, before we go to this next thing, I need to at least address this question. Some of you are thinking, okay, I have clearly operated outside of the context of God's intention for sex. What does that mean mean for me? Am I just damaged goods? I don't work anymore sexually. I'm to be discarded. I'm, I'm connected to this person I'm not even in a relationship with anymore. What does this mean for me? I think it's a great question. And um, I think the best way to answer that is to look at this little brief story out of John chapter 8. There is a woman that is caught in the act of adultery and she's brought to Jesus. I mean, think about that. She's caught in the act of adultery. Just saying that would be an awkward moment. And um, she's brought before Jesus. I don't know if she's naked. I don't know if she just has like a sheet that she grabbed on her before she gets presented before Jesus. And Jesus engages with her. And she's clearly operating outside of God's intention for sexuality. And what does Jesus say to her at the very end of that little story? He looks at her and he says, I don't condemn you. And go and sin no more. What he says to her are those two things, and those two things always go together with Jesus. He looks at her and he says, I don't condemn you, meaning your past is forgiven. He redeems her past. He he liberates her from her past. She is not damaged goods. Your past has been forgiven. I don't condemn you. But then he also looks at her and says, and I'm going to invite you into a life of wholeness, into a life of peace, into a life of freedom. Go and sin no more. Be freed from this. And those two things always go together. Jesus doesn't just look at her and say, I forgive you. You are, I I will not condemn you. Now go and do whatever you want. He doesn't say that. Nor does he say, stop it and leave her with all this guilt. He says, look, I I don't condemn you. And he calls you and me to the same thing. He calls you and me to change. He calls you and me to repent. To leave our life of sexual brokenness and sexual deviousness. But he doesn't do it by shaming you, by scolding you. I mean, no amount of self-loathing and beating yourself up and just sort of dumping on the guilt and saying, okay, I'm going to try harder now. None of that will free you. The only thing that will free you is when you come into the embrace of his grace and his love and his forgiveness. That's what heals you. That's what transforms you. And that's what actually motivates you then to go and sin no more. So sex is a huge deal. I told you that the Bible's view of sex is better than you think it is because it says sex is this amazing. Nobody has a view of sex that is this holy, this sacred, this powerful. But here's the other thing that you have to hear tonight. The other half of this statement is that sex is not necessary to your fulfillment as a human being. Sex is not essential to who you are as a person. In other words... um, Sex is a huge deal, but, th- but that's to say it's not as big of a deal as we want to make it to be. And there are, there's a religious way of screwing this up and there's a non-religious way of screwing this up by making sex a bigger deal than the Bible does. Let me give you these each at a turn, each at a time. The religious way of screwing this up is when we make sex such a big deal that it is the way that you take your spiritual temperature. 
how are you doing spiritually? Well, let me think, how am I doing sexually? Uh, I haven't looked at porn in three days. Um, I haven't messed around with my boyfriend in two weeks. So I think I'm doing pretty well. Or the inverse is true. How do you think you're doing spiritually? I screwed up again sexually. I looked at porn again. Guilt. And that's to say, we just take sex and elevate it to this thing that says, this is the way that you take your spiritual temperature. And we ignore, actually, the whole weight of the Bible, which the weight of the Bible is the priority of your heart over your sexual behavior. How is your heart? How are you doing with greed and pride and vain ambition and a desire for reputation and recognition? How are you doing in those departments? The Bible puts way more emphasis on that than it does how you're doing sexually. So that's sort of the religious way that we screw this up. And the non-religious way of making sex a bigger deal than it really is is because, like I said before, the I world looks at you and it says, sex is essential to your fulfillment as a human being. If, if you're not going to express yourself sexually, then you're, not, you're carving out a part of what it means to be human. And in fact, what you are sexually is your identity. That is the core of who you are. And we're going to talk about that a lot more next week as we talk about sexuality and the implications of that. But I want to just start to land the plane here and ask this question. Um, I want you to think about this. What is it that we are really desiring when it comes to sex? What is it that we really want? Is it just physical release? Is it just pleasure? Or is there more to it? One author said this, that human beings are the only animals that make love face-to-face. And I think that's pretty interesting. Why is it? Why do we crave this face-to-face intimate connection with each other? What's going on there? Well, I think, again, Genesis gives you the key. And I'll look at one more verse with you tonight. Look at verse 25. Verse 25 is the key to this whole thing. It says, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. They were naked and they were unashamed. And that is the key. They were naked. And it's not just talking about they didn't have clothes on. It means that they were completely transparent. No lies, no shame, no secrets. They were known fully. And yet they were unashamed because they were loved completely. They were fully known and fully loved. And the Bible has a word for that. It's the word intimacy. And that's what every one of you are looking for. That's what we are all so furiously chasing. And that's why sex is so alluring, because it holds out to you the possibility that you can be known fully and loved completely simultaneously. That's why sex is so alluring. That's why porn has so many of you so tightly in its grip and you can't get out. Because it is just this allure of I can be known, I can be loved for who I am simultaneously. But, but I want to say this, and, and you need to hear me here. This side of eternity, you will never get the intimacy that you crave from a sexual relationship, even in the context of marriage. This side of eternity, you will never get the intimacy that you crave in a sexual relationship, even in marriage. Look, I'm happily married. I've been married eight years. I dearly love my wife. In fact, I was thinking about her today, this, uh, this morning, just how really how thankful that I am that she's in my life and has an in, in influence in my life because I think she's a wise and godly person. But, but here's what you need to know, and here's what I think is somewhat um, humorous, is that the only people that think that 
marriage will fill their deepest longings are people that aren't married. The only people that think that marriage will actually fulfill them are people that aren't married. Marriage will not, cannot fulfill you. Sex will not, cannot fulfill you. It is not the intimacy that you crave. Which, which raises the last question, then, then how can I get that intimacy that I crave? There's only one person that knows you fully. And there's only one person that loves you completely. On the cross, Jesus looks at you and he says, I know you fully for who you really are. All your shame, all your secrets, all your lies, all your failures. That's why I'm up here on the cross. And on the cross, he also looks at you and says, and I love you completely too. That's why I'm up here on the cross. Jesus is the only person that knows you completely and loves you completely. And so real life, real intimacy is found in knowing him and savoring him and obeying him and enjoying him and loving him. He is the one that provides the intimacy that you are looking for. Jesus himself said there is going to come a day where marriage is no more and sex is no more. And you think, how can eternity be happy or fulfilling if there's no such thing as marriage or sex? Because 1 John tells you, when you get to that side of eternity, you will see Jesus face to face. The face to face sexual encounters that we so desperately crave will find their realization in the face to face connection with him in glory. He is the one that you're ultimately looking for. He is the one behind the sexual experience that you're really craving, intimacy with him. And so let me just end by saying this. I, I, I want to plead with you to not make sex to be something that it was never meant to be. It was never meant to fulfill you, ever. It was never meant to provide you with an identity, ever. Sex is always, always, always a signpost pointing you to the intimacy that you crave with the one whom your soul was made for. And so I want to end here. Um, one last little snippet. There's a great story in John chapter 4. Another little story where Jesus encounters a very sexually broken woman. She uh, is basically a sexual addict. She has tons of sexual baggage. And Jesus engages with her. And he looks at her and he says this. Whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Whoever drinks the water I give him, will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And here's what's the good news about this, is that the Bible's sexual ethic does not deny anyone the experience of true fulfillment and true love. It does not matter what your sexual orientation is. It does not matter your marital status. It does not matter what you have done sexually or haven't done sexually or what you are doing sexually right now. All you need is offered to every one of you, to every one of you. Whoever will come and drink, you will thirst no more. Consider that an invitation for you tonight. Let me pray. Father, I know that... um, Addressing this topic and um, easing into these waters, um, it brings up a lot of wounds and a lot of questions and a lot of um, skepticism and maybe even a lot of anger for some of the folks in this room tonight. And so I pray, Father, would you be gracious with us? Would you be gentle with us? 
to hold out in front of us the real intimacy with you that we so desperately crave. Would you give us a taste even now of your knowing us fully and loving us completely? And would that even now begin to fill us, begin to satisfy us, begin to quench our deepest thirst in our heart of hearts? Father, we are, we are hungry, we are empty, we are aching, we crave for that sort of connection with other people. Help us, by your grace, to find it in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.